Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. We will be reading the whole chapter this morning. Dead flies make the pufirmer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to right, but the fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stone is hurt by them, and he he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed." If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies his words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and and wine gladdens life. And money answers everything. Even in your thought, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell of the matter. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God, we come once again now to uh, the preaching of the word, and we ask, Lord, that Christ would be Uh, the ultimate expositor today, that he might uh, come in power and in clarity and in the demonstration of grace and conviction that you might bring upon your people a word from on high. For that is what we need today, Lord. We need a word from God. We need a word from, from you, not from man. And so we turn our attention to your word, asking God that you might come to us afresh We do this week after week, month after month, year after year. And God, we pray, like you have always done, come and saturate your people with your glory. May you set our affections aflame for Christ today, that our mind might understand the glory of your word, and that our wills might be moved to live for you and not for self. Cause us, God, to have a soul that is so controlled by the love of God in Christ, we pray. 
Do this all for your sake and our good. Amen. We'll stay in your Bibles there in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 10 is probably the most difficult uh, passages in all of Ecclesiastes. At least what the, that's what the commentaries uh, say, so I'm going to follow them. It is true. Uh, it does read like a proverb. I'm sure you, um, you got that sense when, when Chuck read. Uh, I feel like you're in the book of Proverbs instead of Ecclesiastes. And so if you wanted a sermon on Proverbs, well, here you go. Uh, here we go in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. So it is the probably the most difficult passage or chapter to interpret and also to exposit in Ecclesiastes. But nonetheless, 2 Timothy 3.16 says the word of God is still profitable for teaching and correction. All of it is actually. So we are going to preach it. Commentators, one more note here before we get going. Commentators are not agreed on what holds all of these, par- uh, all of these proverbs together. Uh, Michael Fox, actually, a uh, commentator on Ecclesiastes, uh, writes, and I found this helpful, the topics of rulers and speech, wise and foolish, recur throughout this chapter, but there is no overall design or movement of thought. Well, thank you. That's very helpful for me. Uh, and the topical clusterings seem merely uh, demonstrative. There is no overall design or movement of thought. So, um, I titled this uh, sermon, Life Under the Sun, Part 2, because I don't know what else to title it. So, Life Under the Sun, Part 2. Um, let me just say one more comment, actually, before we get started. Um, you might approach this, and it's going to be a very moral sermon. And on one hand, um, we, that's a good thing. Uh, we need our lives to be changed, to live for the glory of God in moral ways. On another way, we don't want to be moralistic in our preaching or moralistic in our living, um, such that uh, that's all that we do. So I want to say at the outset that this chapter in Ecclesiastes as a whole seeks to shape and to color your life um, in part for the demonstration that the world might see your wisdom or your morality and be convinced or persuaded that there is a God. So William Tyndale wrote uh, to Sir Thomas More in the 16th century, um, arguing that part of Augustine's conversion, besides the preaching of Ambrose, was the character and the morality of Christians around him. So that's, that's what we're aiming after here. Life under the sun, what does a, a life that is well-lived um, look like? So life under the sun, part two, point number one, an ounce of folly outweighs a pound of wisdom. An ounce of folly outweighs a pound of wisdom. Verse one, chapter 10, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. We've said this before. Wisdom is good. It's what we ought to strive for. We're going to be preaching that today, but it has limits. And it says here that dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. You can see the parallel, can you not? A little folly parallels dead flies, and wisdom and honor parallels perfumer's ointment. 
The idea is that an ounce of folly can at times outweigh a pound of wisdom. We say in our vernacular today, one rotten apple spoils the whole bunch. Right? That's the idea here. At times in our lives where we seek to be wise, we seek to do that, that which is glorifying to God, but we make blunders in our life, and we have dead flies in our lives, and sometimes it's going to give up a stench to your life. Consider King David, a man after God's own heart. We remember all the things King David uh, did and was and what he was titled, but we also remember what? That's right. The dead flies in his life. His incident with uh, Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. You're going to make some serious blunders in life, the preacher says. You're going to have dead flies in, in your ointment of life. which should make us ever grateful for the blood of Jesus Christ, that he welcomes repentant sinners back to him time and time again, calling us to lay down our dead flies of life and cast ourselves upon him. So an ounce of folly, beloved, outweighs a pound of wisdom. That'll be true for you at times. I hope that encourages you because Jesus is encouraging. Verse, verse 2, and secondly, the wise are inclined to the right way, the wise are inclined to the right way. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart inclines him, or a fool's heart uh, to the left. No, this is not a comment on American politics. Not exactly, at least. In ancient Israel, the right hand symbolized favor, honor, power, deliverance. The left hand symbolized ineptness, folly, perversion. And he says here, the wise man's heart or his soul, okay, his mind, will, and affections inclines him to the right. So if you have a good heart uh, transformed by the grace of Christ, you're in Christ by faith and have union with him, you're going to be inclined to the right way. In the words of our Lord, a good tree will bear good fruit. The wise are inclined to the right Way, verse 3, fools can't hide their own folly. Fools can't hide their folly. Verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. So even in public places like on the road, not in his house, but on the road, fools show everyone that they're fools. No, they're not telling everyone that they're a fool, but it's clear from perception that they are. Proverbs 12, 23, the heart of fools broadcasts folly. Fools can't even hide their own folly, driving drunk, cheating on exams, cheating on your spouse. Here I am, world, a fool just broadcasting folly. Fools can't even hide their own folly. Verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses 
to rest. Don't match anger for anger. This is the idea here. This is conflict resolution 101. Don't match anger for anger. What should you do, beloved, if your boss gets mad at you? A friend, a family member, a brother and sister, boys and girls in the room. What should you do when your brother and sister gets mad at you? Should you match anger for anger? No, the psalmist, excuse me, the preacher says calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer. This is often in the Wassel home. A soft answer turns away wrath. A soft answer turns away wrath. With patience, Proverbs 25, 15, with patience a ruler may be persuaded. What do you do in conflict? When someone is yelling at you, mad at you. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, turn there actually. 1 Corinthians 6 provides, I think, an illustration for what the preacher is talking about here. The Corinthians are taking each other to court, not wise. They're uh, having lawsuits with one another. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 6, Brother goes to law against a brother, and that is before unbelievers. What are you doing charging, uh, bringing each other to court to have, to have the world judge you? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a de- defeat for you. And then he says these provocative words, Why not rather suffer wrong? You know, why not, why not just be wrong? He says, why not rather be defrauded? So the other person is right. Or or, or let's say you're right. You're right, but the other person thinks they are. Is it really worth the argument to go tit for tat? The preacher says, no, calmness will leave it to rest. Paul says, why not rather suffer wrong? So you're in the right. You now have to tell them that you're always now in the right? You know, you can suffer being wrong. You can do that. Why not rather be defrauded? Matthew 5, one more. Matthew 5, 38. On this point, don't match anger for anger. Well-known text. Matthew 5, 38, you've, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, lex talionis, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. <laughs> do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So not even just calmness. Here, here's another cheek to slap. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, leave him Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Do you see the idea? So you are in the right. So what? Calmness will lay great offenses to rest. You don't always have to Defend yourself. In other words, use wisdom when dealing with people, beloved, and lots of it, because a little folly 
may hurt you. Back to Ecclesiastes 5, 10, verses 5 to 7. There is an incongruity in life under the sun. There are paradoxes. There's incongruity of life. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an heir proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Folly is set in many high places, he says. Imagine that. Or maybe don't imagine it. Fools running the show. What? Yeah, welcome to Life Under the Sun, part two. Fools are running the show while the rich, those with some ability, I think is what the censor, are in a low place. What is going on? We ask that in our day and age today. What is happening today? It's life under the sun. Verse 7 is your illustration. I've seen slaves on horses, Solomon says. What? In princes walking on the ground like slaves. There's an incongruity of life. I've seen boys want to be girls and girls want to be boys. Life under the sun. I've seen the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Slaves on horses. Princes walking. I've seen the rainbow to be a sign of God's common grace and I've seen a rainbow to be a sign of of rebellion and sinful culture. You, you, you sit back and you think, what is happening? What is going on? Enough of the world. What about the church? I've seen the theologically uneducated man thrive in fruitful ministry. <laughs> and I've seen the scholastically educated man worship himself. I've seen the young burn, burn out, and I've seen the old burn brightly. Slaves on horses, princes walking. I've seen the most righteous, beautiful person live, die, and rise for the most unrighteous and profane. There is an incongruity of life. I've seen the suffering of this present world unable to compare with the glory that is to reveal to us. There is the paradox under the sun. And I've seen through our suffering, we are more than conquerors. I've seen a lamb that was slain standing, standing as the lion of Judah, now conquering. There is an incongruity to the gospel, is there not? The slaves on horses, that's you and I. And princes walking. There's an incongruity to life, but there's a paradox of the gospel, beloved. You must see that in verse 7. That is the gospel. Verses 8 to 11. Wisdom has advantages. 
He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. So if you're not careful where you dig a pit to trap an animal, you might fall in it to yourself if you're not careful where you made it. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. This is just common sense. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. Work smart, not fast. Measure twice, cut once. If the iron is blunt, one does not sharpen the edge. He must use more strength. Wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Timing matters. <laughs> Be sure the snake is charmed before you try to hold it. Right? That, that makes sense. Learn how to ride a bike. Learn how to swim. Look both ways before you cross the street. That's wisdom. Right? Before you grab a snake, charm it. Timing matters. Wisdom has advantages. We might say today, save your money, but give most of it away. Feed the hungry. Laugh with friends. Plant a church. Call your parents. Care for the dying. Get oil changes. Eat right. Adopt a child. Speak about Christ. And do all these things with wisdom. Great wisdom has advantages in your life. Verses 12 to 15. Use wise words. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. Or I think the sense here is are gracious. That he has gracious words. The lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? Oh, boy. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Look at verse 12 again. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool Consume him. Turn to Luke chapter 4, would you, to illustrate this? Verse 22. Uh, Jesus just unrolled the scroll of Isaiah. He said that the jubilee years are fulfilled in his own day. He says in verse 21, he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he spoke, and all spoke well of him and marveled at what? The gracious words that were coming from his mouth. The wise are filled with gracious words. Words that encourage, words that build up, words that uplift, and words that correct. Jesus taught gracious words, or used gracious words. One more illustration, Ephesians 4.15. You know this, beloved. So much of preaching is telling you what you already know. 
Ephesians 4.15. What does the apostle say? Rather speaking the truth in love. We are to speak the truth in love. Yes, there is a place for correction. There is a place for rebuke. There is a place for admonishment. There is a place for speaking truth. But how? All throughout Scripture, beloved, you see the call here to be someone with grace in your mouth, that your lips might display the same grace that has saved you. Speak the truth in harshness. No. We say things in our day and age today. Well, I just tell it how it is. Well, you're a fool. You're a fool. Use gracious words with people. Verse 13, Ecclesiastes. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. This is incredible. The beginning of his words of his mouth is foolishness. And the end of his talk is evil madness. Isn't that something? (laughs) The fool doesn't know when to stop. The beginning of his speech is folly. And you would think he would stop. Nope. The end of his talk is even worse. It's madness. The fool doesn't know when to stop. He just keeps talking and talking and talking and talking. Like Mr. Talkative in Pilgrim's Progress from Pratting Row. He just talks and talks and talks. You see, the fool uses, actually the fool understands the power of the tongue. So in one sense, they're actually wise. They actually understand the power of speech. And so what the fool does is he continues to talk and manipulate and play angles with people and uh, seek to put himself in the best possible light possible. And he does that by manipulating others through his speech. They play angles. People aren't someone to um, enjoy or love. They are people to manipulate for their own well-being. They even claim fools do to know the future, verse 14. A fool multiplies words, he just keeps talking, though no man knows what it is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? We've already seen that man cannot and does not know the future. 322, 612, 87. But the fool, man, he knows everything about everything. The fool's a know it all. The fool is a gossip. And one of his days, verse 12, is going to be true of him. Look at it. The lips are going to consume him. The fool's words will find him out, and he will be caught in his own snare of gossip and manipulation. So wise words matter. Uh, Verses 16 to 20. Leadership matters. 
Leadership matters. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life. And you know what? Money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Verse 16, again, under leadership matters. Youth, I don't think, is the problem. Or being a child, I don't think, is, being, is the problem. Josiah was king at, verse, or at, 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 at age 8. Is that correct? So I don't think being a child is the issue. I think being childish is the problem. And the text says that his childish ways are expressed by, quote, Feasting in the morning, or his princes are feasting in the morning. So instead of working hard for the nation, for the people they govern, they wake up and party. They live for themselves. That's what they're after. Drinking at an early hour is a sign of debauchery, Isaiah 5, 11, childish leadership. By contrast... Verse 17, happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your prince's feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So blessed are you when your leaders work responsibly for the nation. Their feasting is not for drunkenness, the text says in verse 17. Their feasting is for strength and it's at the right time. They're not waking up and getting drunk. No, the feasting at the right time and in the right way. Uh, verse 18 was provocative for me because I have part of my roof sinking in. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. I think we're back now to the childish ruler. Not only is he a drunk, he's lazy. His house, I think the nation, sinks into decay because he himself is in decay. Uh, Verse 19, I think, is the song they sang. That is, the princes of this childish leader. This is the song they sing. I think Cindy Gradanis is right. Bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens life. And money answers everything. Let the good times roll. Right? At least for me, anyways. We'll spend the people's money, but uh, you know what? Money answers everything for me. What's our response to bad leadership? What's our response to childless leadership? If leadership matters, and it does here, there's a, there's a good one, there's, there's some bad ones here. What should our response be? Anger? Righteous anger? Yes, I think so. Righteous anger, that is. What's our response? In Ecclesiastes 10, look at it, verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Wow. 
You want to get upset at your rulers, your legislators, your governors, your president? The preacher says, don't even think about it. Sinfully, that is. Do not curse the king, even in your thoughts. That's hard to do when life doesn't make sense. We're in the world in which we live today. And you see what you see in the news and you read what you read in the news. Am I the only one that gets angry in this world? I don't think so. Who is running the show? Fools are running the show. And you're thinking, gosh, what would I say if I could stand before our legislators? What would I say? Ecclesiastes 10.20 has, has a truth for us, I think, to think about and to consider. You know what? We better not even think about cursing the king. Righteous anger aside, I get it, I get it, I, I, I get it. But this is not what I'm prone to. I'm prone to anger and impatience and frustration. So our response to bad leadership is prayer. First Timothy, three, First Timothy 2, right? Pray for your leaders, it says. Pray for them. If we prayed as much as we criticize our leadership, Boy, we might be some different people around here. Pray for your leaders. Well, let's bring this to a close. We're in Ecclesiastes 10. You have all of these Proverbs set before you. And I walked away thinking on this last point, I'm so grateful for our leader, Jesus Christ the good shepherd of the sheep. He laid down his life for his sheep. He knows them by name. He knows you by name. He's calling you to himself today. He did not live for personal interest as these individuals did here, but he lived for the glory of the Father and for the good of his church. And he laid down his life for his people. His blood is sure to save. Praise be to our God for giving us our great shepherd and our leader, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for our Savior, who is, in some ways, the ultimate paradox to life. God of very God, yet man of very man. And slaves can now mount horses because our prince walked and wept and died. We give all the glory to Jesus Christ. And I pray 
that you would grant us wisdom in this life. Keep our tongues under control. Keep our minds under control. And keep our lives away from us, God. And may we always stay near the blood of the cross of Christ. That is what we need. Less of self and more of the spirit-wrought work in our life. For your sake, do this.